2,000 years, people have asked this question and answered this question. This video was shot in Davis Square, just here uh, locally in uh, Somerville. And, and you saw some responses to the question, who is Jesus? Does he matter today? Well, people 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was walking this earth, they were answering the same question. In fact, toward the end of Jesus' public ministry, just before his death, he performed a miraculous work. Perhaps the greatest sign that he had yet performed. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And we find in John chapter 12 that when the great crowds heard that Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, and they heard that he was coming to Jerusalem for Passover week, they went out to greet him. It was on this day that we celebrate, Palm Sunday, when they run out and throw palm branches, waving palm branches and throwing them in the road as Jesus is coming in on this humble donkey. And what do they say? Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is how some were responding to Jesus Christ in his day. But for some of them, they were expecting that the Messiah would quickly set up a political rule through military might. And so they were hoping that Jesus would be this political figure who would solve all of their problems under Roman rule. We are going to see this morning that Jesus was not that kind of king. Even though Jesus rode in and experienced this, what we call triumphant entry, we are going to find that if we just fast forward four days later, some of the same people that said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes, were ready to crucify him to a Roman cross. That is exactly what we're going to look at as we study uh, the Gospel of John, chapters 18 and 19 this morning. And so if you, have, if you have a Bible, please open up to John chapter 18. If you need to use a Bible that we've provided for you, there are some there under the seat. Uh, John is the fourth Gospel in the New Testament, so kind of toward the back of the Bible, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then uh, the Gospel of John. And what we're going to discover this morning is that Jesus completed his mission of redemption through his sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus completed his mission of redemption through his sacrificial death on the cross. As we work our way through John 18 and 19 this morning, we're going to find several truths that really paint a picture of the sufferings of Christ. And the first truth I want us to see this morning is, is this, that Jesus suffered rejection at the hands of men. The first half of chapter 18 is really devoted to painting this picture of Jesus being rejected by, really, a variety of people. Number one, he was rejected by one of his disciples, who we know as Judas. Every time in the Gospels that the list of disciples is mentioned, Judas is always described as the one who betrayed Jesus. This was his legacy. Judas sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver and teamed up with Satan to take out Jesus Christ. He brings this band of soldiers with him to this garden where he knew Jesus would be hanging out with his disciples. 
And while most of us, if we knew we were about to be arrested, might have, you know, devised a scheme to escape, Jesus, it says, look in verse 4, it says that he steps forward and said, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered them, I am he. Now, with these words, I am he, there are some just theologically loaded significance in these simple words, I am. In the Greek, it just says, I am. And there are clear overtones from the book of Exodus where God reveals himself to Moses as simply, I am. In other words, God says, I am the self-existent one. And every time we see Jesus in the gospel making statements like, I am the bread of life, I am the light, of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. When he's making statements like these, there is more going on than just him making a simple claim. There is a claim to deity. And it seems that there is something of the glory of Christ revealed in this moment as John really helps us with. Because what happens? Look in verse uh, 6. It says, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It seems that there was a moment of divine revelation here. Jesus says, I am. And the soldiers actually physically draw back and fall to the ground. So Judas and the band of soldiers were exposed to the power of Christ as they arrested him. The rejection of Judas is clear, and so is that of the Jewish authorities. We see this in verses 12 and following. You see, the, the Jewish authorities had seen enough of Jesus' miracles. They had heard enough of his teaching to know that, hey, this guy is a threat to us. He's a threat to you know, our plans, our followers, our ambitions. And so they are with Judas in desiring to take Jesus out. Look in verses 19 through 24 with me, if you will. Let's read these together. It says this, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I have said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so what we have here, just a quick summary, uh, what we have is this informal trial of Jesus. The Jews set up this kangaroo court in order to interrogate Jesus unjustly and send him off to be sentenced to death. Now we know that there was some injustice going on here because Jewish law required that there be witnesses. This is why Je Jesus is not being a smart aleck here, okay? <laughs> he is saying, look, if if, if you knew the law and if you really, like you say or, and appear, you want to live by the law, then 
you would conduct this in the right kind of way. There would be witnesses. It should have been the responsibility of Jesus' accusers to bring forth witnesses to solidify their charges against him, not for him to defend his own innocence. In any case, Jesus answers honestly. He gets struck in the face, and then he's sent to the official high priest, Caiaphas. Why was he sent to Caiaphas? Because Caiaphas had to lay down the the Jewish uh, ruling so that then Jesus could be taken to the Roman authorities who only had the official authority to crucify him. So we see that Judas rejects Jesus. The Jewish authorities reject Jesus. Perhaps this doesn't totally surprise us as we read the Gospels. But then we may be somewhat stunned to find that one of the closest followers of Jesus, Simon Peter, also in these moments, in the most difficult moments of the life of Christ, his good friend Peter also denies him. You see, Peter was in the inner circle of the inner circle. He was, as Jesus called him, the rock. After all, when, when Jesus forewarned Peter, I mean, he, he prepared Peter for this. He said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And what does Peter say? He says, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. And Peter, like the rest of us, has his moments of great failure and great disappointment. He denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Before we are too hard on Peter, and even before we're too hard on Judas and the Jewish authorities, I would ask the question this morning, have you ever rejected God? Have you ever rejected the rightful reign of Christ in your life? I mean, surely for all of us, if we're being honest, we would say, man, in this life that I've lived, it's not a perfect one. In some way, shape, or form, maybe not as blatantly, But surely all of us, to one degree or another, we've rejected God. This is precisely why Jesus goes down the road of the cross. See, the rejection that Jesus experienced did not weaken his resolve to overcome our betrayal and continue to the cross, to pay the great price of all our denial and all of our betrayal. This leads us to the second truth this morning. Jesus suffered unjustly as the innocent king. Verse 28 says this. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. See, with this move from uh, the presence of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, we have a dramatic sequence of events that is about to unfold. What we have is Pilate speaking outside to the Jews, saying, hey, what's going on? What's your charge against this man? Then uh, Pilate brings Jesus into his headquarters, and he begins to question him. We're going to look at that in more detail. He will then go back out to the Jews and say, look, I find no guilt in this man. You guys need to settle this issue yourself. 
While the Jews persist, then Pilate has Jesus flogged, beaten. He comes back out to the Jews again and he says, I still find no guilt in him. He has another conversation with Jesus and then finally as he goes back outside, the Jews continue to insist on his crucifixion. The charge leveled against Jesus was this. He claims to be a king. Luke 23, verse 2, really clarifies what John is getting at when it says this. We, the, 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 the Jews said to Pilate, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. What is more explicit in Luke is more implicit in John. We find the charge clearly in John as well because in Chapter 18, verse 33, it says that Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? This is the question that Pilate needed an answer for. And it would be my contention that this is the the question that we need to answer as well. You see, John works hard to run this king motif all throughout these two chapters. He tells us that the charge leveled against Christ, that he was a king. He then has this conversation with Jesus about his kingdom. The, the, the soldiers, when they flog him, it says that they wrapped a purple robe around him and put a crown of thorns on his head as if to mock him as a so-called king. John leaves no room for doubt. This is the charge. <coughs> and even... As we'll see, when he's nailed to the cross, the charge is written in three different languages. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And so, if the charge is Jesus claims to be a king, then the question we should ask is, what kind of king is he? And the narrative gives us at least three answers to that question. Number one, he is a king that demonstrates Complete authority. We've already seen this. I mean, think about it. Jesus, as early as John chapter 6, tells his disciples, hey, one of you 12, you're going to betray me. You're going to be the means by which my life will end. Even in John 13, at the last meal, he tells Judas, go, do what you're going to do quickly. Jesus is in total control of the situation. We've seen this already. He steps forward. He makes himself available. Before Pilate, he is not intimidated. He is not trying to preserve his life. He answers truthfully each and every time. Even in John 19, we see that Jesus says in verse 11, you would have, this is bold, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. In other words, unless God had given you this authority, you would have no authority over me, Pilate. Jesus is in complete control of the situation. In this whole scene, even to his final breath, when he gives up his spirit, Jesus is backing up his words in John chapter 10, verse 18, when he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. The question has been asked for centuries, who killed Jesus? Was it 
the Romans? Was it the Jews? We even see here that even in their authority, Jesus voluntarily sacrifices his life for people. He's a king that is in absolute authority. He's also a king that brings renewal and peace. Look in verse 36. Jesus begins to answer the question that Pilate poses to him. He says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So, so, so Jesus says, look, um, what you're concerned about, Pilate, I'm not in this thing, I'm not a, the type of king that's going to set up a political rule here in Jerusalem and try to overthrow you Romans. My kingdom is, is much different than that. And so Jesus states in negative terms that his kingdom is not from this world. Well, what are some implications that we can draw from that? Well, at least one is this, is that his kingdom is a kingdom of of peace and renewal, not of militaristic conquer. This is what Isaiah prophesied about in chapter 9, verse 6 and following when he said this, For to us a child is born, referring to the incarnation of Christ. To us a son is given, speaking of the Father's mission to send the Son. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his government and of peace there will be no end. Jesus is a king who brings peace and renewal. And then finally, he is a king that rules through truth. If he states In verse 36, in negative terms, what his kingdom is like. In verse 37, he states it in positive terms. Look at verse 37, if you will. Pilate asked him again, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And so when Pilate asked Jesus again, are you a king? Jesus certainly doesn't deny it. In fact, he affirms that, but he says, look, I was born to be a king. And for this purpose, I've come into the world. But but what is his kingdom like? Well, his kingdom is a kingdom of truth. He comes to bear witness to the truth. And the unbelievable, awesome thing about Jesus' claim here is that if we read the Gospel of John from cover to cover, what we're going to find is that for Jesus to say he came to bear witness to the truth is for him to say that he came to bear witness to himself. He himself is the truth. He is true reality. We find it only in him. So Jesus' rule is a rule of truth. He has complete authority. He brings Peace and renewal. He is a king that reigns and rules through truth. But as we read through this narrative in John 18 and 19, we find this reoccurring note all throughout these two chapters. And that is this. is As Jesus suffering at the hands of men, he is doing so in a very unjust manner. Why? Because he is innocent of the crime. Pilate says this, In chapter 18, verse 38, 
when he says after, it says, after he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. In chapter 19, verse 4, he'll say it again. After he had Jesus flogged, he comes back out. See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Chapter 19, verse 6. After the Jews continued to cry out for his crucifixion, Pilate answers, take him yourselves and crucify him. Really sarcastically. I find no guilt in him. Jesus is the truly innocent sufferer. Purposefully suffering on our behalf. Which is what John tells us in the rest of chapter 19. The third point I want us to see this morning is this. Jesus suffered in order to accomplish his mission of redemption. This is the key truth this morning. Jesus suffered in order to accomplish his mission of redemption. Read verses 16 through 22 of of John 19 with me, if you will. It says this, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. See, I have a feeling that in many churches this morning, there are probably a lot of pastors appropriately preaching on the crucifixion of Christ. And it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, we hop on iTunes and podcast various sermons from around the country. Um, There might be sermons that are loaded with gruesome details of crucifixion. And I'm not just trying to take a shot at that, but it's interesting that John here, he just says simply in verse 18 that they took him away to be crucified. He doesn't give us all the details. And maybe why is that? Well, John is apparently wanting us to see that all the bloody, gruesome... De- I mean, Jesus was a man. He was the God-man in the Christian worldview. But he suffered as a man. The flogging on his back, the nails through his wrist, they did not feel good. But John does not hammer on those details because he wants us to catch more of the, the- theological significance of the work of Christ on the cross. A little bit about crucifixion. The Roman orator Cicero said this about crucifixion. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him? What? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. He said in another place that a Roman citizen citizen should not even think about crucifixion nor have the word on his lips. This is how gruesome and, and, and nasty of a death 
uh, crucifixion was in this time. Some have said it's the worst form of, of death that man has ever invented. But again, this was not the main concern of John. You see, while we see Christ being crucified, physically enduring suffering, there is more going on here than meets the eye. You see, he is not simply suffering a cruel death, but he is at the same time accomplishing a cosmic victory. Look in John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. This is what John writes. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We would be hard-pressed this morning to find three more significant words in the Bible than these on the lips of Jesus in his dying breath. It is finished. Jesus tells us and he tells the world that he carried out his task. He got the job done. He accomplished his mission. His resolve is seen in John chapter 19, verses 9 through 11, when before Pilate, as Pilate interrogates him with question after question, it says that Jesus was silent. Just like Isaiah 53 would foretell. We read it this morning. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He finished his work. Tomorrow, hundreds of runners from all over the world will compete in the Boston Marathon. It's a great day in the city of Boston. It's one of, uh, at least in the, the running world, it's, it's one of the, the most significant events of the year, and these runners that have trained, in fact, we have a friend this morning who's going to be running tomorrow um, in the marathon, uh, the, these, these, these women and men who are running in the marathon, you can imagine that they're going to give every ounce of energy, muster every ounce of determination to not get to mile 10 and think, man, I've done a fair job here. Let me just kind of chill out and get a cup of coffee at Starbucks, right? I mean, they're not going to push it for 23, 24, 25, 26.1 miles and be content with saying, hey, I was in the Boston Marathon. No, they have trained for months, years to finish the race, to do their very best in a much more grandiose way, Jesus in these moments is finishing his race. Through his trial, through the unjust beatings and suffering that he is absorbing, he is on the cross finishing his work. And what is this work that he is referring to here? What is finish Jesus? It's his great work of redemption. Jesus on the cross accomplished 
the redemption of all who would believe in him by absorbing God's just wrath on our sin. This is the message of the cross. See, Jesus was born to die. This is what he said in Mark 10, 45. He said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The primary mission of Jesus was to glorify the Father through accomplishing this mission of redemption. And so we ask ourselves, why did Jesus have to die? There are two glaring reasons that I want us to consider this morning. Number one, the holiness of God required that his justice be satisfied. God had to meet the demands of his justice. See, some people don't like the idea of a God of justice. It turns them off. Surely God is simply loving But for a God to be holy and just, um, I don't want much to do with that. But deep within the recesses of our human hearts, we still cry out for justice, right? You can't look at Auschwitz. You can't look at Darfur. You can't look at the child who's being abused and not cry out for justice. The human heart longs for justice because we are made in the image of God. He is a God of justice. God is so holy that he cannot live human sin and rebellion undealt with. And so it's through the cross of Christ that he meets the demands of his justice. Listen to what John Piper says about the holiness of God, the seriousness of our sin, and this need for justice. Sin is not small because it is not against a small sovereign. The seriousness of an insult rises with the dignity of the one insulted. The creator of the universe is infinitely worthy of respect and admiration and loyalty. Therefore, failure to love him is not trivial. It is treason. It defames God and destroys human happiness. Since God is just, he does not sweep these crimes under the rug. See, the just penalty, the just consequences for our sin is, the Bible says, death. It's not simply physical death, but it's spiritual death, both in this life and in eternal life. You say, Tanner, this is not a good way to start a church, to like talk about separation from God and hell and things like this. <laughs> well, this is what the Bible talks about. And... If you've ever been to the doctor, you know that the proper diagnosis is necessary in order for there to be the proper cure. We need to understand that God is holy, that his justice demands that sin is dealt with. And the beautiful thing about God is that he doesn't simply demand justice to be satisfied but he chooses to satisfy his own justice through his incomprehensible love. John has prepared us for this. In John chapter 1, he says that John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 3.16, surely this is a verse you've heard before. For God so loved 
the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not suffer the just consequences of their sin, but have eternal life. In John 13, verse 1, this is what it says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John 15, verse 13, Jesus says to his disciples, Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. The justice of God is real, but the love of God is radical and true. This is what Octavius Winslow reflected on when he understood that Jesus had to be the sacrificial substitute for our sin. And he knew that the driving force, the motivating factor in the heart of God was love. Listen to what he said. If one perfection of God shines out in redemption with greater effulgence than any other, that's a 19th century of way of saying radiance, brightness. If there's anything that shines brighter than any other, is this. Love is the focus of all the rest. The golden thread which draws and binds them all together in holy and beautiful cohesion. Love was the moving, controlling attribute in God's great expedient of saving sinners. Justice may have demanded it. Holiness may have required it. Wisdom may have planned it. And power may have executed it. But love originated the whole and was the moving cause in the heart of God. So that the salvation of the sinner is not so much a manifestation of the justice or holiness or wisdom or power of God as it is a display of his love. All the details that the gospel writers go to great length to show that all the Old Testament prophecies are pointing to this coming Messiah, and Jesus is fulfilling them all, all along the way. All of those details, all of those plans was a plan of God's great love to rescue us. There's a song by Rich Mullins that says, There's a wideness in God's mercy that I cannot find in my own that keeps his fire burning and melts this heart of stone, keeps me aching with a yearning, keeps me glad to have been caught in the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God. Have you been caught in the reckless, raging fury of the love of God? This love has been poured out for you on the cross of Calvary. The love of God in Christ burns with the fiercest intensity. And we see this in the cross of Christ. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? We see, number one, that Jesus glorified his Father by completing his work of redemption. Number two, Jesus procured for us all the spiritual blessings that belong to the children of God. There is no way. This is the finished work of Christ, by the way. There is no way for us to measure all the blessings that flow to those who belong to, 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 to God, to Christ, from the cross of Calvary. Here are just a few. The forgiveness of sins. See this in Ephesians 1.3. Now we have no condemnations. Romans 1.8.1. 1, 1. Sorry. 
our justification is a result of the finished work of Christ. Our righteousness is a result of the finished work of Christ. We have peace with God because of the finished work of Christ. We have complete access to God. We don't have to go through anyone else, no other human being on the face of the earth. We go to God through Jesus. He gives us access to God. His death is the greatest gift because he brings us to God. This is why we were made. We were made to have a relationship with God. The death of Christ brings us back to God. Do you see why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I resolve to know nothing while among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We named our church Redemption Hill because this is the climactic moment in the storyline of God's great plan of redemption. This is not just a Palm Sunday thing or an Easter Sunday thing. I mean, we're going to talk about the cross all the stinking time. It's all about the cross. It's all about what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. What else did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Well, I love this. His death provides the proper motivation for every action of his followers. You say, you're just you know, a preacher. You're just overstating your claims. Well, here are just maybe eight ways. I mean, we can argue about it if you want. His death, his love motivates our love to God. His finished work motivates our love for one another. His finished work motivates our unity. This is what Ephesians 2, I just have to pause here. Redemption Hill, we want to be a a church that looks like our community. And I love what's happened over the first two Sundays because we've had even senior citizens in here. It's really cool. We've had people from all different backgrounds, ethnicities, nations. This is who we want to be. Why? Because in Christ, what makes us who we are is not our background or our ethnicity. It's who we are in Him. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, black or white, slave nor free. We're all together in Christ. This is what the Bible teaches us. The gospel accomplishes this. It changes our view of one another. It causes us to live together in unity. It motivates our good works. It motivates our generosity. It motivates our forgiveness, our perspective on others. It should motivate our marriages. It should even motivate our work. I mean, think about this at work this week. When you don't want to finish a task, I mean, look to the cross. Jesus finished his, his work, right? Especially as it's the end of the semester for you college students. <laughs> the cross of Christ changes everything. Everything. That's what Paul said in Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We boast in the cross of Christ, his great finished work of redemption. John Stott, I'll close with this. John Stott says this. The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. So my question for you this morning is, have you drawn near to the cross? Do you know the finished work of Christ where he took his righteousness and set it aside so that he could take on our sin? So that in him, as 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange that happens on the cross. Have you drawn near to the cross to know this great redemption? Do you have a relationship with God? Are you secure that, man, if you were to stand before God, that he would accept you? Because listen to this, God will never accept us because of our works. Our works will never cut it. Why? Because we still carry so much, so much sin, so much baggage in our lives. You see, Jesus was perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the cruel death that we deserve to die so that through belief in him, we might have abundant and eternal life. The power of Christian hope is this. Everyone who believes in the finished work of Christ can experience his life-changing gift of redemption. So, to close, let me ask you, have you been caught in the reckless raging fury of God's love? Have you drawn near to the cross of Christ? Have you believed in Jesus, in his finished work, and experienced his gift of redemption? I want to plead with you, draw near to the cross. If it's your first time, draw near to the cross. If it's your 10,000th time, draw near to the cross. Our need for the, to draw near to the cross never, ever changes. Last verse, John 19, verse 35. John lays his stamp of testimony on this, and he says, He who saw it, this crucifixion scene, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. It's my prayer that you believe in the finished work of Christ. His work is enough for us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Thank you for these truths that we have been exposed to in the Gospel of John. And Lord, it is my prayer, our prayer, that we would see you clearly, that we would see the work that Christ has accomplished for us on his cross, and that we would respond rightly, even now. God, help us by your Spirit to respond rightly to what you are speaking to our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.